The reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. And that's on page 1083 of the Church Bibles. 1083. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe, By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world." My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, uh. You know, I was going to say thank you for making your way through the rain this morning. You know, God loves you more than other people for that reason, things of that nature. Nothing, nothing. He loves you more. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to pray and we'll get underway. Be really helpful if you have um, John 17 open in front of you. So would you do that for me? As we, um, as we make a start, let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I pray for us, brothers and sisters here, as we've braved the rain this morning, that you might bless our time as we consider your son who braved the cross. Amen. Amen. I think the United States of America is uh, one of the most beautiful and uh, baffling countries of the world. I haven't seen much of it, but what I've seen I have loved. They have the most, or it has the most breathtaking national parks, the most varied landscapes, uh, to be honest with you, the most terrifying gun laws, and also the most compelling can-do mentality. But America seems confused about its relationship, its place in the rest of the world. Sometimes it seems like America actually thinks it is the world. You know, like it hosts baseball's World Series, 
which is an exclusive American competition that they let one small Canadian team join in. Um, you remember a few decades ago now, the European musicians put together one of those um, hit records for African poverty kind of thing, and they called theirs Do They Know It's Christmas? When the Americans did theirs, do you remember this? They called it We Are The World, without any kind of hint of irony. It's interesting, right? In um, the field of political science, uh, there is a term called American exceptionalism. Uh, now, some would define that as the sense that America's history and mission gives it a superiority over other nations, but many understand it in the sense that the United States has a unique mission to transform the world. They might even cite something like Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which said this, Americans have a duty to ensure government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. So they're a sort of protector of democracy. American exceptionalism has been the official platform of the Republican Party since 2012, that is before Trump, and they have defined it as the notion that our ideas, our ideas and principles as a nation give us a unique place of moral leadership, meaning that the US should retake its natural position as leader of the free world. Although when Mr. Trump spoke of making America great again, he talked about America first in a more inward-looking way. It was all about American jobs and the American economy. And so I guess I'm saying is you ask Americans, uh, what, what is your relationship? What's your posture towards the rest of the world? It actually depends on who you ask. You know, baseball players will give you a different answer to Abraham Lincoln, to Donald Trump. All have got different answers. Some Americans say, we are the world. Some will say, we're the leaders of the free world. And some would say, well, look, America first, and we'll think about the rest of the world later on. But what if I were to ask you the question, what is a Christian's relationship to the rest of the world? What should be the posture of a disciple of Christ to the world around her? or the world around him? Now that's an interesting question and we're going to concern ourselves with that today as we tune into the, the next part of Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's the longest recorded prayer we have from Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. You'll have gathered that uh, this term we've returned to our study of John's Gospel which has been a, a four-year project for us here and we've called this particular part of it, this series The Passion. Because those last chapters of John's gospel zero in on the suffering and the death of Jesus. That's what passion means, incidentally. Less about romance uh, and more about suffering. Passion means suffering. Compassion means you suffer with someone. You join them in their suffering. And so as we edge closer to Easter, we're deliberately and slowly considering the treacherous events on the night before Jesus' death and his death itself before finishing with his resurrection and appearances. But the night before, Jesus prays about the Christian's relationship to the world. And the first thing that we, we uh, note from this chapter is that we are not of the world, but we belong to God. Not of the world, we belong to God. Now, I should say that these words of Jesus are words that he prayed 
in relation to his first disciples, right? The remaining 11 after Judas had betrayed Jesus. He's going to get around to praying for all believers everywhere and in every age in the next section, which we'll be looking at next week. So these verses today are firstly for those first disciples. And so any application that we draw from them is really derivative from how it first applied to those original 11 and how perhaps, perhaps they are representative of all following disciples. And boy, you've got to admit that it is it's quite remarkable. At the hour of Jesus' betrayal, a mere few hours before his execution, he can think of anyone other than himself. Don't you think that's extraordinary? Uh, when I get sick or injured, my world tends to shrink to really just myself, my injuries, what's going to make me better. Uh, our depression tends to shrink our world to just the heavy fog that surrounds us. It's a very small space. Our anxiety usually reduces our lives to just the things that we fear and worry about. But in Jesus' case, his grief, his worry, his sense of impending doom doesn't shrink his world. He continues to think of those around him, those who follow him, and indeed all to come who would follow him. And he says that they, meaning the first 11 but then also us, and not of this world, rather we belong to God. And you see that in multiple places, but let's start there in verse 6. Uh, read in your own Bibles with me. Verse 6, I revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Or down again in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me, for they're yours. Or again, read with me verse 14 in your Bibles. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. You see, how would you describe a disciple of Jesus? Either one of the originals or any who follow in their footsteps? Well, Jesus says, not of the world, but belonging to God. And in fact, the way you know that disciples belong to God is that they accepted the word, they obeyed the word about Jesus. In the case of the first 11, Jesus can pray that, that God has taken them out of the world, given them to be his companions and apprentices. But from their side of things, right, from the human side of things, they believe the words that God gave to Jesus. In fact, in verse 8, they believe that both those words and Jesus himself came from God above. And they have accepted both. Very surprising, isn't it? Look at these 11 such unpromising candidates. I mean, you think you're nothing special. You should see them, hey? Much like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we look at what God has taken out of the world in order to do his work, and we cannot help but think, why them? Of all people, why them? Time after time, they demonstrated their severe limitations, and they're going to do much worse this very evening. And yet they've nailed the absolute fundamentals because they believed in the words of Jesus. Now these summer sessions that we've just finished with Dr. John Dixon were great. It's very important for us that history and philosophy corroborate the person and the work of Jesus. But at the end of the day, that's what history and philosophy do. They just corroborate. It's belief in the words of Jesus that makes someone a disciple, one of Jesus' apprentices. You could be as thick as a brick or have a PhD, but it's still belief 
in the word that counts. And these disciples have nailed that fundamental. Have you? And because they've nailed that fundamental, Jesus says in verse 10, he says that that even they, as hopeless, as uneducated as they might have shown themselves, brought Jesus glory. And so very positively, they belong to God because they believe in the word of Christ. But when it's phrased in the negative, that also means they're not of this world. They belong to God, but they're not of this world. Got a friend, he lives in the very middle of New South Wales, on the land, in deep drought. And uh, I don't know what's going on with the rain out where he is, but it's probably not like here. And when you live in the city, you have a vague sense that the drought is bad, but you don't really get it until you have a conversation with someone from the bush. To be honest, recently it hasn't been easy to have those conversations with him. Because the only thing I want to ask is whether they've had rain, but I know they haven't. At least not enough at the right time in the right places to be helpful. And then you want to ask him, well, what are you going to do? But you can sense that neither of you really want to hear that answer out loud. So even conversation is difficult. Because folks on the land, they have a relationship to that land. We city folk, just, we just don't get it, you know. I remember we were on holidays with him and his family. Our wives are best friends. Um, and we were sitting on a beach at Port Stephens. Perfect autumn day. Looking down the channel. It was glorious. And I said to him, have you, have you ever, have you ever seen anything prettier than that? And without looking away and without any satire, he said, yeah, mate, a field full of crops. <laughs> I just looked at him and thought, you're an alien, man. You really are <laughs> a field full of crops. But when you own land and you work your own land, I think you actually become a part of that ground, don't you? You become a part of that earth. And I, I look at him and I reckon that his skin has darkened from the ground that he has worked. You know, he, he just can't wash it off. He's of that ground. He's of that earth. He's, he's of that land. He, he's a part of it, you know. He's not loosely connected to it at all. Now me, I can walk that same ground. I can leave the next day completely untouched by it. And when Jesus here says that his apprentices are not of this world, I think that's the sort of contrast that he's pointing to. We as Christians are not so connected to the attitudes of this world that we cannot resist them. We're not so affected by the aspirations of this world that we cannot bypass them. We are not so attracted to the comforts and the pleasures and the pastimes of this world that we cannot leave them or lose them or have a little less of them if required because we are his followers, his disciples and his apprentices. Now friends, that doesn't mean we ought not set goals, buy possessions, go on holidays, enjoy food, love living in manly, but it ought to make us think through very carefully our daily attitudes that drive us, our earthly aspirations and our worldly attachments that we are attached to. And we ought to ask ourselves, am I in any way distinguishable from everyone else around me? I mean, could could the people that see me day to day, would they be able to tell I follow Jesus? Are my goals, maybe it's not the goals, right? Because goals are good. Maybe it's the way I achieve them. Are my goals and the way I achieve them any different from my colleague in the next office? Is the way I think about my patients or my students 
or my employees or my clients or my boss any different from my fellow workers? I mean, is my highest aim really just to be happy or for my children to be happy? Is there anything I own I am not willing to part with if need be due to my devotion to Christ and his people? In fact, are there some possessions I just don't need to buy in the first place? Are there relationships I would never risk spoiling? Are there pleasures, whether they're legitimate or guilty, that I could never think of ditching? Are there comforts I never wish to part with? Even if required because of my devotion to Jesus. Maybe um, another way of asking the question, another way around is, have you ever said no to yourself? Or no to your desires? Or no to your close friends and family's expectations because you belong to God and because the words of Christ necessitate it? Very challenging, isn't it? To think about what it means to not be of this world. You know what? I don't even think you can do this on your own. I think you've got to do it with, with other people in close proximity to one another. That's why we're keen for you to be a part of a growth group. If you're not a part of one, we've got dudes groups, ladies groups, mixed groups, morning groups, daytime groups, evening groups. You should be a part of one. Write it on a hello card, slot it in the thing. But let me tell you, friends, you cannot read this part of Jesus' prayer and not be convicted by the way he speaks of the first disciples. They are not of this world because they belong to God. So that's the first thing. Uh, Secondly, today we see that disciples of Christ are in the world and therefore need protection. We're not of the world because we belong to God but we remain in the world and for that reason need protection by God. And again, you see this in multiple places, but firstly in verse 11. So I'd love you to read that along with me uh, where Jesus prays, I remain in the world no longer, but they, the disciples, are still in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. So Jesus is about to leave the world to go back to God post his resurrection. But the disciples remain in the world. They don't get to leave with him, not for now. And this is just as fundamental to our posture to the world as is being not of the world. The 11 disciples are still in the world. We're still in the world. We don't get to leave just yet to join Jesus in his heavenly glory. We stay and we work in the world, contributing to our society, to to culture, to the arts, to the academy, to industry and business, to the environment, working to make a a positive contribution in all these areas of life and community. We build relationships with people of the world. We get to know folks and their families and we love them. And we settle into areas and we put down roots. And don't we wish we could all afford to do that in Manly? We enjoy the life that God has given us in this world. But it does seem to me that Christians often lean to one or two extremes as we remain in the world. Uh, we, we either fear the world, which is understandable, isn't it? You know, because in, uh, in this passage, Jesus says the world hated the first disciples because they believed his words. So some Christians, they almost uh, cut themselves off from contact with people who aren't Christians. And they're, they're overly wary of anything in the world. 
You know, music that isn't Christian, uh, books that aren't Christian, uh, movies that aren't Christian, schools that aren't Christian, people that aren't Christian. Uh, and the other alternative is um, Christians that not, not only remain in the world, but are basically of the world, like we've just been speaking about. Now, now which of those two poles do you think you tend towards? Like the really cloistered Christian? Christian who is indistinguishable from everyone around you. Interesting to think about. Well, let's listen to how Jesus describes what it means to remain in the world as he thinks of these first 11 disciples. Read along with me, verse 14. Jesus prays, I have given them your, as in Father, your word. The world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. I mean, he just, he couldn't be clearer, could he? First disciples are not of the world. In fact, they're hated by the world, verse 14, because of their devotion to Jesus and his words. And yet he doesn't pray that God would remove them. <laughs> He's just uh, going to remove my notes there. Can we shut that door, please? He, uh, he doesn't pray that God would remove them from the world. He prays that God might protect them as they remain. And in fact, if you go back up to verse 11, Jesus admits, he concedes that, that he protected the disciples while he was with them. But now that Jesus is returned to the Father, they, they're in need of protection from God. <laughs> they need protection. Bolt it down. Now, if you live by the beach in Australia, you know we need protection. What do we need protection from? The sun. Putting on sunscreen, it's like a greasy ritual before you hit the sand. It was not always like this. When I was growing up, uh, up in St. Ives, we used to catch the bus down to Monoval Beach and the boys would put lemon juice in their hair as if they were a prawn or a fish cocktail or something like that to make their hair go blonde in the sun. And the girls, and I know some of you girls would have done this, used to lather this thing called latan all over their limbs and bodies and they would lay in the sun for hours. You know how like sunscreen these days is factor 50 plus? Latan was sun protection factor two. And this stuff, it's basically cooking oil. And uh, they would basically baste themselves like the barbecue chickens that you buy from Coles. And you catch the bus home from Motovalet. Most of us look like that. <laughs> these days we understand protection better, don't we? And uh, if you've ever forgotten to put on your sunscreen on a high UV day, you get it even more. Well, friends, these first disciples needed protection from the world. And actually, it doesn't even say from the world. It says, verse 15, from the evil one. Spiritual protection, of course, not sun protection. One of you um, find it troubling, disconcerting, how few of your prayers are for spiritual things. You know, it occurred to me during the week, most of the things I pray for are for physical things. Jesus prays here, he doesn't even pray for physical protection. And most of these 11 disciples ended up dying because of their devotion to Christ. But he does pray for spiritual protection, that he might lose none of them as disciples. Father, he prays, as I leave them, would you protect them by your name? Uh, that's really by his whole character from the world and from the evil one, that none of them might be lost. They're in the world, they need protection. Okay, so what is the posture of a Christian disciple? 
an apprentice of Jesus to the world. Firstly, not of the world because we belong to God. Then, paradoxically perhaps, we're still in the world and we need protection. But lastly for today, we're sent into the world and we require sanctification. Sent into the world, require sanctification. You see this from the last few verses in your passage. So read along with me, verse 17. Sanctify them, Jesus prays, sanctify these disciples, the 11 remaining by the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, you can see very clearly Jesus sends these first disciples into the world. God gave them to Jesus out of the world. You remember the opening of Mark's gospel when um, Jesus called the first disciples, these rough fishermen, as they mended their nets? But as he leaves the world, he doesn't kind of leave them behind in the way you leave rubbish in the stadium after the concert's finished. He sends them back into the world with a purpose, with a mission, to be fishers of people, as it were, dragging men and women and boys and girls into the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. They're not left behind, they're sent into. And for that reason, they need sanctification. And you heard that word in verse 17 and verse 19. Sanctification. It's a big word. It's a Bible word with a Bible meaning. And uh, mostly when we use that word, we think of the process by which we become more like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit as he softens our heart to obey God's will because we love him. That's how we normally use the word sanctification. We become more like Jesus because we love him. It's a word that describes a process of ongoing personal holiness. And yet that word also has a root meaning of being set apart for service. And this must be the sense in which Jesus uses it here because Jesus prays that even he might be sanctified. Now, Jesus can't mean that he might gradually grow in his personal holiness because he's already perfectly holy. Okay? So he's talking about being set apart for the service of dying on the cross. And he says these first disciples, they need to be sanctified too by the word of Jesus. That's the gospel in order to be useful as they're sent into service in the world in which they remain. You and I, if we're Christian people, we also require sanctification by the gospel of Jesus, the good news about his life and death and resurrection. We need that as well for our service of testifying to the world in which we remain. Now, school has started back, hasn't it, for those of you who are teachers? I know you guys like doing show and tell, so I brought something from home. I'll get to that in a second. Um, Must admit, uh, when it comes to kind of handyman sort of stuff, I'm not very handy. But I do like to give things a go. Always dangerous, isn't it? The guy who's not handy but likes to give things a go. The wife smiles and nods her head nervously rather than happily. So years ago, I bought a hammer. And I bought a hammer and it came with tool belt, right? This sort of thing that you wrap around yourself. Okay, got the idea? Yes, nod your head if you're alive. Yes, I do. Excellent. Nice to be here. Um, let, me, let me be honest with you. I, I only bought the hammer because it came with a tool belt. Uh, I was attracted by the tool belt. I'm not sure what I was thinking, that perhaps I'd look like the real deal, strutting around the home with the tool belt on, all my tools jangling off it. But I quickly realised that you actually have to be a handy guy, not just a weekend wannabe, to wear the tool belt. Otherwise, the only tool in sight happens to be 
yourself. <laughs> got the hammer, got the tool belt. Used the hammer quite a lot, building a chicken coop, fixing fences, threatening the children, <laughs> things of that nature. <laughs> Those of you with daughters are going, oh, I can't believe you said that. Those of you with sons are going, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> so I've used the hammer a lot. Tool belt has never been used. And I really think that um, many of us are probably a, a little bit like the tool belt. You know, we're set apart for service, all right, but we just haven't been that useful. We know the word of Jesus. We love it. We've developed really good relationships with the people of the world, but we're just not sure about this whole sent into the world thing. You know, it just sounds like literally a bit too much of a mission. So what I want to encourage you to do is to just pray for and seek opportunities to share the good news with the people around you. And you don't have to say everything every time. So you know, relieve yourself of that burden. You don't have to say everything every time. But very often you can say something, can't you? One of the uh, unexpected pleasures uh, of the last five years for me has been going to my youngest son's cricket matches. I, I love cricket. I loved playing it when I was younger. But when my older sons previously showed interest, I tried to talk them out of it because <laughs> I'm a good father, you know. Uh, who wants to stand in the paddock for hours in the hot summer sun, I would say. And it turns out that my youngest son really does. <laughs> but it's been a delight to, to watch him love it and to watch him get better at it. I mean, I, I love watching him clean bowl batsmen. Honestly, it's, it's one of the best parts of the week for me. And I have loved getting to know the other parents as well. I mean, the games go for four hours. There's lots of time. There's no real rush. And I think, what a gift that has been to me. He was trying to convince my other sons out of it. Not just to force me to slow down for, for one part of the week, but to slowly share life and a little bit about my faith with people I've grown rather fond of. I'm no expert at cricket. I'm no expert at evangelism either, but there are just little opportunities that are worth taking. If I am a disciple, if I follow in the footsteps of these first disciples, if I'm set apart for service and sent into the world by Jesus, and I'm sure in each of our lives there's something a little bit like that. And so I wonder what that is for you. The return of Jesus to the Father, leaving the disciples in the world, I, I reckon that would have represented a real crisis to those disciples. They would lose his friendship, uh, at the very least proximity to him, which they had enjoyed for three years. They would lose his protection. But Jesus not only prays that the Father would protect them by his name and mighty nature, he sends them into the world with a great mission and purpose and I cannot help but think that he will afford us the same protection should we ask for it. And I cannot help but think he will make use of us similarly should we be up for it. Well friends, let's finish where we started. America. America which seems so confused about its relationship to the world. You know, is it the world? Uh, is it the protector of the world? Uh, is it effectively cut off from the rest of the world, America first and all that? I, I guess it depends on who you ask. But as Christians, as disciples, 
of Jesus and his apprentices. We don't need to be confused like that, that we remain in the world, living in it and working for its good. We're not of the world. We might even be hated by the world because we love Jesus, so probably should feel that at some times. But we do have his protection and we carry on the great purpose of these first disciples sent into the world with the word about Jesus. Probably should be reminded of that and probably ought to get on with that in the little spheres of our own lives. So how about we pray for God's help as we do that right now? Let's join together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that um, even on the night before his death, moments before his betrayal, the Lord Jesus might think of his disciples and all future disciples, including us. Uh, Just help us to, to really get our place in the world, that we're neither cut off from it, we remain in it, and yet we're not of the world and can can hold pretty loosely to its goals, aspirations, all those sorts of things we've spoken of. And yet also remind us, Father God, that you have a mission for us, that we are sent into the world with the wonderful news of Jesus. So embolden us, give us courage to develop relationships with the people of this world so that we love them and know them, and also that we're not afraid to share the good news of the Lord Jesus with them because we love him and we love those people and we seek the honour of his name in which we pray now. Amen.